Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Mblex Test Prep Podcast. My name is David. I am your host on this wonderful, magical, fabulous journey through the world of the Massage and Bodywork Licensing Exam. I know it's been just a minute or two since I've done a podcast. I've had an incredibly busy year in 2021 and at the beginning of 2022, but I'm here. I've finally got some quiet time. Uh, As many of of you know, I do have two children who are exceptionally loud and my ability to record podcasts uh, not conducive to that. But uh, I've got some quiet time, so I'm going to try to pump out a podcast really quick. So, of course, some really quick stuff that I got to talk about first. Of course, I have an updated study guide, Inblex Test Prep Comprehensive Study Guide and Workbook 2022-2023. I will not be releasing a new one in 2023. This book should cover the next two years. So definitely, if you're looking for a study guide, upgrade to that if you already have one of my study guides. Or if you don't have a study guide yet, definitely check that one out. You can find it on my website, amblextestprep.com. Or you can find it on Amazon. Just search for Amblex Test Prep. 2022-2023. You should see it right at, right at the top. Look for my name. If it doesn't have my name on it, it is not my study guide, so always check for my name. Another piece of information, of course, I haven't done a podcast since this piece of information has come about. I have an app. I have a smartphone app. All you have to do on iPhone is search for Merlino's Mblex Test Prep. That's M-E-R-L-I-N-O apostrophe S. On Android, all you have to do is search for Mblex Test Prep. And if you see my logo, you know it's mine, right? So the app has 100, a minimum of 100 free practice test questions. It also has a free question of the day where you get a brand new question asked every single day. So you keep coming back every day, you get a brand new question to try to answer. If you upgrade to premium, all that stuff is free. If you upgrade to premium, you get the full podcast archives. You get a full content review, including practice tests for every single piece of information that I have in in the app. You get flashcards, pre-made flashcards, over 1,600 flashcards already made. And you can save flashcards. You can save your favorites, so you can constantly review those. Really cool and you get over 2,200 practice test questions. That's about 1,700 more than is in my study guide, and a lot of pictures and stuff, a lot of great brand new questions that, uh, I mean, unless you have the app, never seen before, haven't been in my books or anything, so definitely check that out. Also, leaderboards. You you can match up against other people. See how you rank against other people who are taking these practice tests. You get points for each question you get right. So the more questions you get right, the more points you get, the higher you go on the leaderboard. See if you can be number one. I'm not sure who's number one right now. It's up to you to find out. Go download the app. Feel free to upgrade to premium. I highly recommend doing that. And other than that, I... I I think that's that's all I have to say, right? So I'm going to take a quick break, uh, and when we come back, we will get started. Welcome back. I know that was a, an incredibly long break, but we are back. Okay, so today it is mid-February at this point, and it's getting close to tax time, so I thought... 
it might be a good time to discuss types of employment and tax forms that you will have to deal with when you become a licensed massage therapist and are working. I'm sure you've already dealt with a lot of these forms in your life. I mean, people come from all walks of life and become massage therapists. So I'm sure you might have some experience, especially with probably the one of the first two. Okay. So we're going to start with our types of employment. So there's the regular employee, somebody who agrees to work for somebody else, receives a wage, an hourly wage typically. Uh, they can receive gratuity as well. They receive benefits, health benefits. They pay taxes. Taxes come directly out of paychecks most of the time. That's an employee. Okay, So employees have a lot of protections provided by the government. There are plenty of laws that help to protect employees in the workplace. Whereas some of these other types of employment, there aren't really a lot of protections. Which leads me directly into our next type of employment, independent contractors. Now, a fair amount of you, when you become licensed massage therapists, you might become an independent contractor. And even though I own a business, I am still an independent contractor. I still contract to work with another company to make money. Okay, So independent contractors, as massage therapists, uh, are people that work independently for themselves, but they sign a contract with another person or a business to perform work specifically for that business and, and bring people into that business. So there might be some sort of terms in each contract that state here's how much money I'm going to make, here's how much money you're going to make per massage. Or it could be a rent setup where maybe you pay a certain amount of money for rent, but you keep all of the money coming in from the massage appointments. And maybe they handle scheduling for you or certain things like that, laundry service just a couple examples of things that you could negotiate in your contract with this company that you are signing a contract with. Some companies say, no, you are just renting a room. You will pay me money. You can offer services whenever. You still have to kind of operate under our general rules, but for the most part, you're your own business, okay? So that's essentially what an independent contractor is. So independent contractors, again, don't have as many protections as somebody like an employee. You are considered a business owner as an independent contractor. So you need to have those business licenses taken care of, your massage license, and in most locations, a state license and a local license as well to operate within a specific city or town, right? And as an independent contractor, you are able to actually set your own hours and wear your own uniform. You can wear whatever you want. Again, it's your business. You are signing a contract. These are some of the freedoms that you have as an independent contractor. You can set your schedule. You can set, I mean, within certain parameters, you can set your schedule. Like if you are contracting with 
like a day spa or something like that. And they have set hours of operation, you know, like 8 a.m. until 9 p.m. That's typically when you can set your schedule. Not that many people are going to set their schedule to any earlier or later than that uh, in my experience. But still, you're not going to be there after the business decides that they want to be closed, right? So you can set your own hour. So if you only want to come in to do massage for three hours on a Monday, you can do that as an independent contractor. And the business can't tell you, you have to be there more often. You are your own boss. You set your own schedule. If you want to wear some crazy flashy clothes, I wouldn't recommend it. Of course, I'm, I'm, a little more conservative when it comes to the business attire. But if you want to, as an independent contractor, you are well within your rights to do that. And they can't tell you not to because it's your business. You're in charge of your business. You can charge people whatever you want for your massage. You can charge $100. You can charge $200 for an hour. You can charge $10 for an hour. The business can't tell you what to charge, right? So again, these are some of the protections that you have as an independent contractor. Now, some maybe negatives to being an independent independent contractor is you don't get benefits from the person you are contracting with. Unless you specifically include them in the contract, typically you're not going to get things like health insurance out of an independent contractor job. That's, that's incredibly rare in, in my experience, right? So you don't get things like health insurance. You have to pay your tax. The taxes don't come directly out of your paycheck. Whenever you get a paycheck, if you get a paycheck, you do have to pay that money. So you have to be kind of disciplined with your money and you have to put your money aside to make sure that you're paying taxes to the federal government and the state government and even your local government as well. If the local government requires certain taxes, okay? So you have to be disciplined with your money. You don't get benefits. I recommend setting aside a separate savings account and taking at least 15% of whatever you make and putting it directly into that account so that nothing happens to that money. So you have money saved for taxes and you don't have to worry about it around this time of the year like I typically do. Listen, I'm, I, I save my money, but still owning a business can be a little stressful come tax time, okay? And that kind of leads us into our next type of employment, uh, sole proprietors. So I am an independent contractor and I am also a sole proprietor because I own my business and my business is owned by one person. Now the government can consider a business to be one person if it's owned by a, a married couple. Okay, so my my business is technically considered considered a sole proprietorship, but it's owned by I guess technically two people. My, my wife doesn't do a whole lot with the business. It's mostly me. But she is considered a business owner, so she is still responsible for having her name on taxes and things like that. Okay, So sole proprietors, sole proprietorships, I should say, are businesses that are owned by one person, what the government considers one person anyway. You can be a sole proprietor without being an independent contractor, but you can't really be an independent contractor without being a sole proprietor. 
Okay, so independent contractors are sole proprietors. Sole proprietors aren't necessarily independent contractors. You can own a business without contracting with somebody else to perform work. So as a massage therapist, if you aren't renting a room from somebody in a like a spa setting or anything like that, let's say you just you just rent a regular office in a in an office building type setting, you are a sole proprietor. You aren't an independent contractor. I mean, yes, you signed a contract to rent the place, but you aren't bringing business into that place specifically like a place like a spa would kind of expect you to, right? You bring, you With spas, you bring customers in and then they see what other services are there and then maybe they get a facial or they get a haircut or a manicure or a pedicure or buy some products as a result. That's kind of the give and take with, with the day spas and independent contractors. With sole proprietorships, if you are renting that room, there's nobody else involved in the running of the business in any way, you are scheduling your appointments, you are handling your laundry, that is entirely your business, you are the sole owner, you are not an independent contractor. So again, sole proprietors, pretty similar to independent contractors, but a little different in, in some ways, okay? Next up, we have partnerships. So a partnership is a business that's owned by two or more people, okay? So partnerships aren't always equal. So it's not always one person makes 50% of the income, the other person makes 50%. Some people come into a business relationship with more money or more assets or more of a working knowledge of the business and the ownership split is kind of determined by that. So I've been in negotiations for partnerships where it would be 50-50 because one person had the money and I had the product and we would come together to create this entity. Now, of course, it never happened. Never happened, unfortunately. Well, what you going to do? Business. That's, that's the life of a, uh, a businessman, I suppose. Things happen. What you going to do? But partnerships. Partnerships don't always have to be two people either. It can be multiple people. It can be tons and tons of people. But if you are coming together and each person owns at least a piece of a business, it's considered a partnership. And then we have S corporations. So an S corporation is a type of partnership. Um, it's a little similar to an LLC as well. Uh, limited liability corporation. So S corporations are corporations that pass the income that the business makes and the taxes that the business has to pay onto its shareholders. Now, my easy way to remember S corporations is I match up the S in S corporation with the S in shareholders. So the shareholders are the ones responsible for reporting income and taxes to the IRS come tax time. An S corporation—it's—it's more of a tax classification. So it's—it's it's a corporation that deals with taxes a specific way, if that makes sense. Okay, so S corporations, like I said, are a little bit similar to LLCs, where they do provide protection for the business, but they're taxed as partnerships instead of one of these mega corporations. So taxes are, are handled just a little differently with S corporations. 
And that is essentially it with types of employment that you need to know. It's just those four, really, independent contractor, sole proprietor, partnership, S-corporation, I guess employee, so five. Five types of employment that you need to know, but everybody knows what an employee is, right? Okay, so let's, we're going to move on to tax forms. So, of course, tax forms are very important, especially this time of year. Some taxes you are required to pay multiple times a year, quarterly. Some taxes you pay once a year, if any. Who knows? You might get, you might get tax money returned to you as, as a tax return. So, so, of course, if you're an employee, most of the time you're going to pay taxes with every single paycheck. You take money out of whatever whatever income you have made, and it is sent directly to the government. That way, you don't even touch that money, right? You have your gross income and your net income. Your gross income is what you make before taxes. Your net income is typically what you are paid as an employee after the taxes have been removed removed from your paycheck. Stuff like federal income tax and social security tax, Medicare wages and tips, stuff like that is all taken out of a, a an employee's paycheck. So you don't even have to deal with that. And it makes it pretty easy come tax time. All you have to do, if you don't have any you know huge deductions to report, and you shouldn't have as an employee, really... You're just going to input the information from a W-2 into whatever tax reporting software or website that you are using. Or so, I mean, some people do, still do taxes on, on paper. Like, that's a completely foreign concept to me. But some people still do it, right? So you would just input that information, and then chances are, if you receive a W-2 and you don't have any other income, you will receive some sort of tax return if you are paying enough in taxes. Now, I've worked at places that failed to input the proper uh, tax reporting thing for me. Like sometimes I like to be taxed on a rate where I'm, I'm taxed at the single rate. So my taxes would be a little bit higher. Taxes taken out of the W-2s are a little bit higher just to make sure that the money that I'm paying to the IRS is sufficient. And then at the end of the year, I am well above what is required of me from the IRS to pay. And then I get a sizable tax return. So in my weird way, that's kind of like a savings account for taxes when I actually have a W-2. And it's been a long time since I've had to do that with a W-2. I haven't worked a W-2, an employee job in a very long time, one that requires me to actually pay taxes like that. But that's typically what I would do. I like to be safe when it comes to paying taxes. Uh, paying taxes can be very stressful for me, for me personally. Okay, So I like to, to make sure that I'm taxed at a higher rate when I'm an employee just to make sure that the taxes are actually covered. And that's just me. It doesn't have to be you. It does not have to be you. Just from my personal experience. Okay. Again, employees get W-2s and, and taxes are taking out, taken out of the employees' paychecks to cover taxes throughout the year. Stuff like Social Security and federal income tax, sometimes state income tax, Medicare tax, etc., etc. All that stuff is taken out of a W-2. Now, on a W-2, we have a, a couple numbers that we have to deal with, right? Not, not money-related numbers, but reporting-related numbers, okay? So on a W-2, you're going to have two different numbers, an EIN 
and your social security number or your tax ID number. Okay. So an employee identification number is a number that each business is given that issues out W-2s to identify that specific business. So on W-2s, the entire number for an employer identification number is listed. When you have a W-2, your social security number will also be on it. And that's one way to ensure that you are the correct person getting this W-2. Because some people have very common names, right? We want to make sure that we are the actual person receiving our W-2. I'm sure it's very rare that something like that can get mixed up, but you never know. And if there's any doubt, you want to make sure. So including the social security number can help to identify who the W-2 is for. So on a W-2, the entire number, your entire social security number will be listed. So it will be all numbers listed. All nine numbers are visible on a W-2. Make sure you know that, okay? Next up, we have a 1099. So a 1099 is issued to independent contractors from the business that they are contracting with if the independent contractor makes more than $600 in a year. If it's less than $600, a 1099 typically is not issued. Okay, So there are a lot of different types of 1099s that deal with different types of income being earned. Okay, so a 1099 miscellaneous, MISC, uh, is used when a person has earned at least $600 in specific things such as rent, like if you're renting out a space or something like that, uh, prizes and awards. If you go to, say, a casino, win a jackpot or something, you might have to report that on a 1099 miscellaneous uh, and, and other types of income like that. Okay, so uh, 1099 miscellaneous is miscellaneous income. It kind of makes sense, right? It's just like, okay, I got money from here and money from over here. Not typical income. Okay. 1099 INT basically deals with interest that you have earned during the year on stuff like savings accounts or things like that. Okay. So if you have a large savings account and that savings account is earning you money just by having money in there, that the interest that you earn is reported. If you make enough, of course, is reported on a 1099 INT, INT for interest, right? 1099 G covers monies received from the government, like stuff like taxable grants. If you have unemployment wages, then 1099G is what the government issues to you that that details how much money you were actually given for the unemployment uh, insurance, right? And 1099R is what is given to people who actually take payment out of stuff like their retirement funds, like their 401k or an IRA, stuff like that. If, if you draw money, withdraw money from those savings account, the government is going to tax you on that money. Okay, so a 1099-R, R for retirement, is the form that you would receive if you withdraw those funds. And I don't recommend that. You definitely want to hang on to your retirement funds as long as possible, right? Let, 
let your retirement funds build and build and build. Okay, so 1099s, very fun uh, to receive those as, as somebody who makes the majority of my money as an independent contractor. Definitely uh, look forward to those. Uh, that's a little bit of sarcasm, tiny, tiny bit. It, it just means that it's officially tax time, and I officially have to start doing taxes. And uh, I typically have to pay money uh, every year, so it's... Eh, very fun. So on on a, on a 1099, your the business that you are contracting with is going to be listed. Your name, your address will be listed. Again, the the payer's identification number will be listed. The payer is the business you are contracting with. Your identification number will be listed. And think and it has several different sections for the type of money that you have made. So rents and and royalties. It's a fishing boat proceeds, you know, really weird stuff with the government, what they, what they specifically want you to report. Lots of different incomes that you can report on a 1099. And this, I mean, that's specifically a 1099 miscellaneous. Obviously, a lot of miscellaneous income coming from all over the place. 1099s, again, cover monies made as an independent contractor. Or with specific things like withdrawing retirement funds or gambling earnings. Schedule C. Before we jump into these next couple ones, we need to talk about a 1040. So a 1040 is the tax form that you submit to the IRS when you file your taxes. In a 1040, there are specific sections that you fill out based on your specific situation. So that's basically what these next couple are kind of dealing with. So the first one is a Schedule C. So a Schedule C is an attachment that you include on a 1040 that details the amount of money a business has made as a sole proprietorship. So if you own a business, you would include a Schedule C on your tax return. Okay, so a Schedule C basically says how much money the business made and details the amount of money a business lost or, or expended during the year. Profits and loss, income and expenses. So it, it details basically all the money coming into a business as a sole proprietorship and money leaving a business as a sole proprietorship. So I, I spent a fair amount of money on my business last year, uh, several thousand dollars I've spent on my business in the past year. So that money that I spent will be detailed as deductions on a Schedule C. So all the money that I made from all of my different revenue sources will be also reported on a Schedule C. Okay, so again, it's money coming in and money going out. So something else you can also you would also have to report on a Schedule C is barter. Now barter is trade. So if you are trading a service, a massage service for another type of service, you still have to report that to the IRS. Now what the IRS wants you to report is 100% of the service of the cost of the service that you are giving. If you receive something in return for that service, that's considered a form of income. And because it's you're not trading money, there has to be some sort of monetary value attached to it. So if you are trading a massage for a massage, 
even if your prices are different, like let's say one, let's say, let's say your massage, you charge $100 an hour, and the person giving you the massage in return as barter charges $75 an hour, you have to report that $100 an hour income on a Schedule C, okay? So it's still considered income even though no money is being transferred in this transaction. So with barter, you always, always report 100% of the cost of your service that you are trading for, okay? So even if you're trading things, you still report what the thing you traded is worth, as income because you're getting something in exchange for that thing that you gave away okay so with barter 100% of your service is reported on a schedule C and another attachment to a 1040 is a schedule SE schedule SE specifically details social security tax information for self-employed individuals so my way of remembering uh, schedule SE, I think of SE, self-employed, Schedule SE. Okay, so self-employed individuals still have to pay into Social Security tax in some way. Schedule SE is going to detail that information. Okay, so Social Security tax information for self-employed individuals is detailed on a Schedule SE. Okay, next up we have a Schedule K-1. Schedule K-1s are filed by individual partnership members. So again, like like we talked about with partnerships earlier, not every partnership is equal. Some partnerships are 50-50, some are 60-40, some are 70-30, etc., etc. If you ever watch Shark Tank, these people are buying into a part of the business and sometimes they only buy 5 or 10% of the business, but they contribute a fair amount of money to that business, right? But they're still joining a partnership at that point. So partnerships, each partnership member is probably going to make a different amount of money. So the IRS doesn't just split the money, you know, however many ways, depending on how many partnership members there are, each partnership member needs to figure out how much money they made and report that based on how much of the business that they actually own. So if somebody owns 30% of the business, chances are they get 30% of the income from the business and they report that information on a Schedule K-1. Okay, profit and loss statements are, I mean, it, it kind of says what it covers, doesn't it? Profit and loss Statements detail the amount of money a business made and and the amount of money a business spent during the year. And that's essentially it. I mean, how easy is that? Profit and loss statements, income and expense. One last piece of information on taxes, uh, gift taxes. So gift taxes are taxes that can be reported to the IRS if you do things like buy gifts for clients. Okay, so let's say you have a client or a few clients coming in around the holidays and they're your regulars and you want to show appreciation for those clients, you can get them gifts and then deduct some of that money from your taxes. 
And it's considered a business expense, right? It, it helps create some goodwill with your customers, brings more customers in. It is considered a business expense. But there's only so much that you can deduct from taxes or report to the IRS per client per year. So you can do it multiple years with the same client, just you have a limit to how much you can actually deduct. So the amount of money that you are able to claim as a deduction as a gift tax is $25 per client per year. So if you are buying a gift for a client, you, I mean, you can, you can buy whatever you want for a client. I wouldn't recommend spending more than $25 because you can't deduct more than $25 per client per year. So if you want to give them a gift card or something, make it less than $25. Save your receipts. You can use that as a deduction on your taxes. It all works out, right? And you can do that multiple with multiple clients every year. Like every year you can do that. But again, $25 per client per year. That's essentially it for the information you need to know on taxes and employment. I, I hope that was riveting stuff, a lot of great information there. And of course, we're, we're always learning new things as business people, me especially. It's, it's, every day is a, a new thing to learn, especially with, with taxes and employment, especially running your own business. Highly recommend it for a lot of people. Some people better off as employees. And listen, there's, there's nothing wrong with being an employee. There's nothing wrong with not wanting to own your own business. I didn't want to own my own business for a very long time, so I didn't until I decided, you know what, I'm, I'm kind of ready. So if, if you think you're better off as an employee, especially starting out as a massage therapist and you just want to kind of work your way up to it, there's nothing wrong with that. If you want to jump into the deep end and become a business owner right away, there's nothing wrong with that either, right? There are multiple ways to go about this, this crazy world of massage business. It's up to you to figure that out. And of course, if you need any help, or, or want any advice from me, what advice I can give anyway as a business owner, uh, feel free to reach out to me and I can, uh, I can maybe help, help a little in, in my experiences. Okay, so I'm going to take another quick break and when I get back, we will do something else. I'm not quite sure yet. We'll see. Welcome back. Again, uh, uh, an incredibly long break, I know. But we're going to do question of the week. It's been a while since we've done a question. Well, I mean, it's been a while since I've done a podcast, period. But uh, question of the week, especially. I think we were doing some, some study skills the last time I did a podcast, right? Study skills. Now it's time for a question of the week. Okay. So we got to use our test-taking techniques to break down these test questions. Think of all your test-taking techniques that we talked about in my previous podcast, episode 16, I believe, study skills and testing techniques. If you have my study guide, make sure you are reading that section in my study guide titled testing techniques, also study skills and reducing test anxiety. Those are very important too, but specifically testing techniques. Very important for the MLEX. If you have really good testing techniques, it can really benefit you when you are taking the MLEX. You won't be as stressed out. It'll it'll give you ideas of how to break down a lot of these questions to hopefully get the question right and 
improve your odds of passing the Umblex, which is the ultimate goal, of course, passing the Umblex, okay? So let's read a question. A massage therapist asks a client to perform a gait analysis. During the gait analysis, the massage therapist notices the client's right foot is in a slightly inverted position. To further check the therapist's observation, the therapist asks to view the client's shoe. What would be viewed on the shoe if the therapist's observations are correct? A. There would be more wear on the heel of the shoe. B. There would be more wear on the inner edge of the shoe. C. There would be more wear on the toe of the shoe. D. There would be more wear on the outer edge of the shoe. Okay, so let's go sentence by sentence in this question, and we will start to break it down. Okay, so I've read it once, and again, there's no problem with reading a question multiple times, especially if it's a longer question with multiple sentences and longer answers. You want to be sure you know what the question is asking, okay? So, first sentence, a massage therapist asks a client to perform a gait analysis. So, let's identify what a gait analysis is. And we, we all kind of know, but you still have to identify it, right? Gait analysis, walking pattern. How does a client actually walk? Let's, let's analyze that. Let's see if a client is having problems with their body because of how they're walking, during the gait analysis, the massage therapist notices the client's right foot, so I picture the right foot in your mind, right foot is in a slightly inverted position. So we got to think about the position of the foot when it's slightly inverted. So we think about the right foot, and what is inversion? Is inversion turning the sole of the foot towards the midline or away from the midline? Inversion turns the sole of the foot in towards the midline. Another, another name for inversion of the foot is supination of the foot. So if you put your hands out in front of you, have your fingers pointing straight up, you're looking at the back of your hands, kind of like you're putting your hands out telling somebody to stop, both of them, right? Those are like your feet. Your thumbs match up with your big toes, just look a little different, but those are essentially the same. If you supinate your hand, that's the same as inversion of the foot, right? So if you supinate your palm, so it faces up, that's the same as inverting your foot. Again, you're pretending your hands are your feet. So inversion and supination, the same thing. Eversion and pronation are the same thing. So if you turn your, your hand into pronation when it's already like this, like you're putting your hands out, telling somebody stop, if you turn it, try to pronate it even more, that's the same as eversion of the foot, right? So, you know, you can't, not a whole lot of movement with eversion, much more with inversion, right? It's the same thing with the foot. Inversion of the foot turns the sole of the foot in towards the midline. So the, the right foot of the client is slightly inverted, okay? So slightly turned in. Okay, next, next sentence. To further check the therapist's observation, the therapist asks to view the client's shoe. What would be viewed on the shoe if the therapist's observations are correct? Now, let's think about how a client would stand if their foot was slightly inverted. Would the pressure be on the toes? Would the pressure be on the heels? Would the pressure be on the inside of the foot? Or would the pressure be on the outside of the foot? 
Now, if a client is standing, and you can try this yourself, you can stand up. You can you can d- even do this when you're sitting down, right? You put your your foot flat on the floor, your right foot flat on the floor, and then slightly invert it. And this is something you can do on the MLAX. Again, I say it all the time. Your body is a cheat sheet. Use it, okay? So slightly invert your foot. What part of your foot is putting the most pressure on the floor? Hmm. Now I'm going to go down the list, and we're and we're going to think about this. A. There would be more wear on the heel of the shoe. So the back of the shoe is that putting more pressure on the on the foot than anywhere else. Hmm. B. There would be more wear on the inner edge of the shoe. Hmm. Now, if this foot is slightly inverted, that means it's turned in. To me, and I'm doing this right now, to me it feels like the inner edge, because my foot is slightly inverted, is actually raised off the floor a little. So that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. There wouldn't be a ton of wear on that side of the shoe if the foot is slightly raised off the edge, right? Okay, C, there would be more wear on the toe of the shoe. No, my toes aren't really pressing into the floor, are they? No, not. I don't think so. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they're not. And D, there would be more wear on the outer edge of the shoe. Now, when I am slightly inverting my foot, it does feel like the lateral side, the outer edge of my foot, is putting the most pressure on the floor. So you got to imagine if somebody's walking around like that, they're going to have more wear on that side of the foot, right? only makes sense to me. You could even check this on your own shoes right now. You know what? I'm going to do the same. Let me check my shoe. Hmm. I have a lot of wear at the base of my big toe where the first metatarsal and uh, proximal phalange articulate. That's where I have wear on my shoe. So apparently I'm not inverted or everted very much because I don't have a lot of wear but you might be different you might have wear on the inner edge of your shoe and that would be caused by your foot being uh, a little more pronated or everted than normal you might have wear on the outer edge of your shoe like the answer to this question the answer is D by the way there would be more wear on the outer edge of the shoe if the client's foot is slightly inverted they're going to be putting more pressure on the outer edge of the shoe, and that's going to cause more wear on that side of the shoe. Again, the inner edge is going to be slightly raised up off the floor, so it's not going to be putting a ton of pressure on the inner edge of the shoe. That's going to be raised off the ground a little. And it doesn't really put a lot of pressure on the toes or the heel. Only kind of makes sense to have it on the outer edge, the lateral side of the shoe. Okay, so the answer is D. There would be more wear on the outer edge of the shoe. So this is a perfect example of an assessment question and a question that can kind of involve kinesiology, too. This is one of the reasons you need to know your muscle actions, right? You've got to know what actions the body does to properly assess a person. You've got to know what muscles may be involved in that. Now, if the, if the foot is slightly inverted, that's going to tell me that there could be a problem with the muscle that inverts the foot, and the two muscles that you need to know that invert the foot are tibialis anterior and tibialis posterior. So you might want to focus 
your attention on those muscles and see if there's something going on with those muscles that are causing the foot to be slightly inverted and that wear to appear on the lateral side of the shoe. Okay, So make sure you know your body actions. Make sure you know what muscles perform those actions. And if you have my study guide, uh, especially my 2022-2023 guide, I definitely have those highlighted in there so you know what muscles perform what actions and, and what to really focus on in regards to that okay so that's our question of the week i hope that was very educational i thought it was uh, again assessment very important knowing your muscle actions very important knowing your muscles very important okay so make sure you know all of that so people ask why why do we need to know all this it's a perfect example of why okay so i think that's just about gonna wrap it up for today uh thank you for tuning in to the Mblex Test Prep Podcast. Again, I got a shameless plugging, of course. I've got the Mblex Test Prep Comprehensive Study Guide and Workbook 2022-2023 edition available now. Go to mblextestprep.com or amazon.com. Amazon is actually where you order it. It's just easier to locate if you go to my website first. Just click on the little study guides thing. I have my app, the Mblex Test Prep app. You can also find a link to that by going to mblextestprep.com. I have it right on the homepage. You just click on the button for either iPhone or Amazon. It'll take you right to the page to download either of those. Definitely check those out. Upgrade to premium if you want the full experience. I definitely recommend it. I'm making updates to that all the time, all the time. New features coming out constantly for that. So definitely check that out. And I have tutoring packages available as well. Pre-made tutoring packages, 25 hours of audio and video, much like this podcast. I just go over everything, right, with actual students. It's already done. It's already ready for you to learn and, and study with. All you have to do is go to my website, emblextestprep.com uh, or you can go to emblextestprepshop.com and you can find the tutoring packages there. It comes with 25 hours of video, 25 hours of audio that you can upload using a computer. You can download it and then upload it to your phone and then you can study wherever you are, whenever you want to study on the go. Definitely recommend it. Uh, also comes with a complete practice test with a video answer key, so it's pretty similar to what we do with question of the week. Just three hours of that, breaking down test questions, uh, going over all that stuff. And I do have two separate packages. One is the complete package. It has everything I just listed and a copy of the Inblex Test Prep Study Guide, the, the actual book and a promo code to unlock all the premium content in my app. Uh, and I have the digital version. So if you already have my study guide, my, my book, study guide, my physical study guide, you can go with the digital package. It gives you everything that I just mentioned. It just doesn't include the study guide because you already have it. You don't need two study guides, right? Uh, and it, whatever, it's awesome. So definitely check out uh, everything else I have, I suppose. Uh, and until next time, it won't, it won't be another year before I record another podcast, I promise. I'm going to make sure I get these out uh, just a little more often than once every 365 days or so. Uh, but uh, until next time, this is David saying farewell. <laughs>